You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Brain health has never been more important. The human brain is regulating so many aspects of our reality, so many aspects of our health. There's a master regulator in the human brain known as the hypothalamus, for example. It's part of the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And it's responsible for regulating, kind of overseeing so many different metabolic processes. For example, the hypothalamus is in direct communication with our gut and sending data back and forth to determine our needs for caloric intake. And based on that data, based on the assumption that our brain and our gut has about our caloric needs, our brain can literally tell our gut to decrease the assimilation of calories from the food that we're eating or increase the assimilation from the calories in the food that we're eating. Again, based on the perception of our brain and its communication with our gut, it's really, really powerful. This is just one aspect of how our brains are regulating our metabolism. Also within the hypothalamus, it's really noted to be this kind of internal thermostat that's regulating literally our body temperature, but also regulating our metabolic rate, the rate at which we're expending calories. And on top of that, it's an interface that's connecting our endocrine system, our hormones, and our nervous system, right? So our brain is kind of the crown of our nervous system. It's the crown jewel of our nervous system, but our nervous system extends throughout our entire bodies, of course. And our nervous system has a lot to do with managing and figuring out our body's association with our environment and releasing hormones based on, again, our perception of what's going on in the world around us and what's going on within our own bodies, right? So our nervous system, for example, is able to sense pain if there's an alarm going off, if there's something that needs to be addressed and sending vital resources, right? So our hormones are kind of these metabolic messengers that are sending communication between all the cells in our bodies. And again, this is a very complex communication. However, there's a simplicity, there's this beauty to it all. And our brain is that interface that's responsible, again, for so many metabolic, but also cognitive aspects of our reality. So our ability to make decisions, for example, whether those decisions are good decisions or questionable decisions, our reaction time, our ability to perspective take, to have forethought and map things out, different scenarios, right? This is one of the amazing things about the human brain, to be able to do thought experiments and to see what would happen if I take a certain action or don't take a certain action and play out different scenarios, right? It's a wonderful capacity that we have as human beings, but also if we're not aware of our capacity to do these things, those mechanisms can kind of go a little bit haywire and get out of control where we're thinking about so many different possible scenarios and problems and worries that it can make us incapacitated and create a scenario where we're not taking action or we're constantly in fear, right? So this can drive up anxiety. And this term anxiety has become a rampant issue in our culture today. And I say this term anxiety because there's so many different expressions of what that can be. No two human beings are the same. And no two expressions of anxiety are the same because we're all completely metabolically, cellularly, 
And even our unique combination of genes and genetic expression, we're all unique. And so we're looking at what are the tools, what are the foundational principles that we can utilize today for all of us so that we can tune into what's happening in our own bodies to create a healthy brain, a healthy nervous system, healthy hormones, and live a far healthier life in a world that right now is not in a very healthy place overall. Not many people are aware that severe cognitive decline has been rapidly increasing in our society today, and specifically neurodegenerative conditions. Right now, Alzheimer's disease, one of the most common of these neurodegenerative diseases, is in the top 10 causes of death. It's inching its way into the top five. Now, this episode today is about, number one, defending our brains from this degradation, from this cognitive decline, and learning from one of the very best experts in this space. But also, not just defending our brain from diseases, but how do we optimize our cognitive performance today so that we can have better outcomes, so that we can have great cognitive performance, great brain health, and overall improvement in all the downstream things, again, from our metabolism to our mental health. So I'm really, really excited about this. And I wanted to provide some insight from specifically someone that I know that I've had the opportunity to work with several times, who is literally looking at the brain as a neuroscientist, looking at brain imaging to see, are these implementations actually making a beneficial impact on the brain? When, when specifically we're talking about nutrition, which nutrients are able to waltz their way into the exclusive area in our bodies because the brain is very protective internally and externally and which nutrients actually make a difference. And so today we're going to combine together two powerful interviews with this expert. And I promise you, it's going to be a game changer. So many powerful insights for ourselves and our loved ones. And this first segment this is a true story, true story. The first segment, she's been working at NYU, New York University for many years. And so I popped into New York City to do some interviews myself. I was doing some media and I had a plug for this recording studio. So I was just like, hey, come on over to this recording studio and we'll do a show while I'm there. And this recording studio, true story, this was the same recording studio where Biggie Smalls laid down some tracks, where Snoop Dogg laid down tracks, Busta Rhymes, Busta Bucks, all right? So needless to say, the aroma in the walls was like permanently there, all right? I'm talking about the cannabis is like permanently permeating in all domains, all right? So there was no, no sparking up in the studio at this point, but years and years have it, had gone by that you just can't get away from it, all right? So I've got this prestigious NYU professor coming in here, and I know she caught a contact. I know she did, all right? There's a special vibe that's coming off through this interview. And maybe it's just us, but maybe it was a little bit of an influence of the studio. But this is one of the cool things about doing this work is that, you know, I have these great opportunities to be in places like this, to connect with industry leading, world changing voices and thinkers, and to create these wonderful scenarios, you know, where we're getting together in a really interesting dynamic and being able to provide some insights, tools, and strategies for all of us to utilize starting today. 
So again, very, very excited about this. And one of our mutual loves from the nutrition perspective is the benefits, because it has such remarkable benefits on the human brain, is green tea. But specifically, there's a specific type of green tea that has the most incredible benefits. Green tea contains an amino acid called L-theanine. And it's one of the rare nutrients that can gracefully dance its way across the blood-brain barrier and provide a fuel that actually increases the activity of a neurotransmitter called GABA. And this particular neurotransmitter is able to reduce anxiety and help us to feel more centered and relaxed. This is definitely a needed component today when we want to be productive, when we want to be focused because our attention is truly at a premium. And another way that L-theanine works to improve our focus is noted in a peer-reviewed study published in Brain Topography. The researchers observed that L-theanine intake literally is able to increase the frequency of alpha waves in our brains. Specifically, this indicates reduced stress, enhanced focus, and even increased creativity. Alpha waves are associated with this state that is, quote, being in flow. It's very difficult for us to articulate this through a language because it's a state that we've all experienced where we're just in the zone, we're locked in, we're in flow. Everything is kind of firing on all cylinders. But there are certain things that help us to get into that state. And really that state is associated with a certain patterning in our brain. And green tea, specifically matcha green tea, is one of those cool things that helps us to nudge our way into that alpha wave state. Now, I drink sun goddess matcha, and this is exclusively from Peak Teas. It's shaded 35% longer for extra L-theanine, and it's crafted by a Japanese tea master. And there are less than 15 Japanese tea masters in the entire world. And it's the first matcha that's quadruple toxin screened for purity because there's a huge issue in the industry when we're talking about teas with microplastics, molds, with pesticides and herbicides and rodenticides. And even if they aren't grown using those things, just the cross-contamination issue that's happening today. And of course, there's nothing added. There's no preservatives, no sugar, artificial sweeteners, any of that stuff. And again, it's the best matcha out there on the market today by far. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E.com forward slash model. You get 10% off the Sun Goddess Matcha and every other tea that they carry. They have over 20 award-winning flavors. So much to choose from. Huge fan of the matcha green tea. Also, the cinnamon fasting herbal tea is great. I love the pu'er. So many great teas over there at Peak Life. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model for 10% off. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Our Personal Vibe Check by Hazel. This podcast has truly reshaped my mindset and my daily habits. Sean not only has wonderful lessons and reminders for all of us, but he also acts as a personal vibe check when you listen to each episode recommended this podcast to so many and I won't stop till everyone hears all the knowledge that Sean drops in each and every episode. Thank you, Sean, for spreading magic and hope in our lives. This is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. That hit my heart. 
I appreciate you so much. And if you've yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. And on that note, let's get to this special compilation from one of the leading experts in brain health and cognitive performance in the world. Today, you're going to be hearing from two powerful conversations from Dr. Lisa Moscone. And she's the director of the Women's Brain Initiative and associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medical College, where she serves as an associate professor of neuroscience and neurology and radiology. In addition, she's an adjunct faculty member at the NYU Department of Psychiatry and the author of two best-selling books, The XX Brain, i.e. The Female Brain, and Brain Food. Now, let's jump into this incredible compilation with the amazing Dr. Lisa Moscone. Nuclear medicine is really code for radiology with radioactive isotopes. Yeah. So when you look at scans of the brain where some parts are blue, some parts are red and yellow, that is nuclear medicine. We look at functionality inside the brain, the, the biochemistry of the brain. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever, yeah. so that's what I wanted to do. And they immediately put me to, to work on a project about Alzheimer's disease because I was yeah. so interested in that. And I never stopped. So I've been working in the field of Alzheimer's It's driven forever. by your family members. Yes, and specifically, um, I was interested in prevention yeah. of Alzheimer's and what causes Alzheimer's, what triggers it, and what do I do to stop it, right? Yeah. And so then I moved to New York to look at the genetics of Alzheimer's. And within a couple of years, I was just so disappointed. Yeah. because I mean, in a good way, because it turns out that genetics doesn't play such a big role as we previously thought it would. So there are some genetic mutations that cause Alzheimer's, right. but that's really less than 1% of the population. Less than 1% less than of, 1 the of the population is a direct genetic mutation yes. resulting. Yes, much wow. less, less than 1%. That, doesn't, that is not to say that genetics don't count. Of Absolutely. course, everybody Absolutely. has a genetic makeup, we yeah. have genetic risk factors, but they're not as impactful as we previously thought. It would be. Yeah. And so I started thinking, well, what then makes the difference here? And that's how I started looking into lifestyle and specifically nutrition, because it, it was really my research that pointed me to diet as a major factor that impacts the, the health of the brain, because I was looking at everything. I was looking at exercise, intellectual activity, mm -hmm. diet, nutritional quality, vascular risk factors, all sorts of vascular risk factors that are known to impact the brain, obesity, diabetes. And when you put them all into your statistical model mm -hmm. and you have the brain as something you're trying to predict, diet is the one factor that kind of always stands out, wow. accounted for everything else. Yeah. So that really convinced me that the diet had a huge role and then I, I founded I started a lab when I was at NYU, it was called, <laughs> not a great name, but it's the, the Nutrition and Brain Fitness Lab. So scientists are better to the point. Yeah. Nutrition and Brain Fitness Lab. And we were doing brain scans, which is really, it was really new mm -hmm. back then because everybody would just measure your diet today and then wait 10, 15 years until you either developed Alzheimer's or do not. Right, and then they would collect information on hundreds of people and then go back to the data they had collected 20 years prior and go like, oh, the people who 20 years later developed Alzheimer's ate a lot of saturated fat, a lot of trans fats, a lot of cholesterol, 
and the other people do not. But that's really bypassing the brain. Right. For me, I want to know what's happening inside your brain as you eat certain foods, as you follow a certain diet, and can I change it? Yeah. So I, I decided to, to use brain scans to do that, which was it's still kind of not really common practice. Yeah, it is definitely not. No. Definitely not. <laughs> and you actually talk about um, this, the fact that the brain has really its own unique diet. Yes. You call this neuronutrition. Mm-hmm. And it's different from that of the rest of the body. Yes, it which is. Which is really interesting. So why? Yeah. Why is that? So I, I also thought it was really fascinating. I'm a, as a scientist, we're not trained in nutrition. Zero. Yeah. Medical doctors are usually not trained yeah. in diet or nutrition either. So when I was studying, I, I studied a lot of biochemistry. And I was reading all these names like magnesium, potassium, sodium, phospholipids, choline, and I never questioned, but where do they come from? Yeah. Right? I just right. assume, well, it's something that's inside same your thing brain. for me, same thing. Right? And instead, they're, they're from the foods you eat. And that was, for me, it was really like, whoa, I never really, you know, I never thought about it. Yeah. And I, you know, I took a lot of biochemistry, yeah. a lot of neurochemistry. And so I started doing a lot of research in that regard. And most of the studies are from the 70s and the 80s. Like, they were done so long ago that basically we have lost trace because they were published in print, mm-hmm. right? There, there are no electronic copies of that. So I had to go back to the library, which is wow. a fantastic experience, so yeah. quiet. <laughs> and really, yeah, I really just request, you know, scanned copies of this super ancient uh, papers, but it, it turns out that, so the, the way the brain works um, is fascinating to me. So the brain is, is an incredible organ, and it's actually the only, it's the most protected organ in the entire body. And that's in part why we don't associate that with food, because we're taught in neuroscience school or in medical school that the brain is isolated from the rest of the body. Right. It's literally shielded the blood brain by barrier. a blood-brain barrier, yeah. right, that just enables specific substances to go inside the brain and kind of precludes access to everything else. But the truth is that this barrier has little gates, right, Mm. that are specific for the nutrients that the brain needs. And the brain itself opens the gates and then closes them back once it got the food it it needs. So there are specific gates that tell us what kind of nutrients are good for the brain and needed by the brain, because these are the only nutrients that the brain has gates for. Right. And then can get inside the brain. And they're really a handful. Like there are about 100 nutrients that are important for health overall. But the brain only has access to, I'm going to say, 30. Mm. And we need to constantly replenish these nutrients because the brain needs them. Yeah. Right? We have little sugar gates. So mm-hmm. the brain, right. when the brain glucose levels go down too much, then the brain will just open the gates and allow the glucose to flow right in. And when it's done, the gates close. So it's not us, you know, we're not necessarily influencing brain nutrition as much as the brain itself saying, oh, I'm hungry, I'm not hungry anymore. Mm. And that's very special because it doesn't happen in the rest of you. And uh, I, I thought it was beautiful, right? It's such a strong protective mechanism that also guides us in terms of what kind of foods and nutrients we should be eating yeah. on a daily basis and what kind of foods and nutrients are not that helpful instead. There's At least so, for the brain. There are so many interesting things in your book. And the way that you stated certain things really just kind of like 
set off a light bulb for me. <laughs> and I want to ask you about what makes brain cells different from other cells in our bodies. They don't because, die. Yes. Yeah, they're irreplaceable. So in the rest of the body, all the cells um, get re regenerate. So there's a specific turnover. Like, for instance, red blood cells uh, die and get replaced all the time. Hair. People lose hair all the time, but then they grow them back. And that's why even short diets have an impact on the rest of the body because your cells have a turnover that can easily be modified, right? So when the new cell is born, you are affecting the development of the new cell. So you can kind of control and guide your body to do certain things, not inside the brain. So our brain cells are born with us, stay with us for a lifetime, they die with us. And the way it works is then there's an explosion of neurons as soon as we're born. And then there's actually a lot more brain cells inside your head than stars in the Milky Way. See, this goes back to that Star nice. Trek that I was talking about at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, everything is about Star Trek, yes. Um, but then as the baby develops, some of the connections, some of the neurons are lost. And then by the time we reach adolescence, we pretty much have all the brain cells we're ever going to have. And there's been a lot of work showing that neurogenesis continues also in the adult brain. So neurons keep growing and keep being formed. But in reality, it's just really a minority right. of brain cells. In just certain so places cute. in the brain. Yeah, they're like in the hippocampus, in the memory center yeah. of the brain, in, in other uh, parts. But by and large, that doesn't really happen. If it does happen, it's dendrites. So it's, the, it's like the, the appendixes of the neuron, not, not the neuron itself. So we really have to take care of our neurons because they, they, they can't just be replaced. I think that's one of the biggest insights I want people to get today mm. is how important it is to take care of those cells because you don't get new ones. You don't. Yeah. Also, you can't change them as easily as the rest of you. So if you read like in a book that in 21 days you're going to change your brain forever, it's just not true. It's impossible. Mm. It is biologically impossible. It takes time. It takes time and consistency. And also, there's something interesting about the brain. And I would see this, of course, in people coming into my office, experiencing, you know, migraines and headaches. Mm -hmm. They're thinking, and I remember growing up, like, you think your brain hurts, but that's yeah. not actually reality. And now it's your muscles in the neck and even here in the head. Because the brain cells don't have pain uh, receptors. They do not have pain receptors. So you can, the brain cannot feel pain. That's nice. Yeah. And so even with that said, the brain not having pain receptors, it's not like your hand that can tell you that it needs some treatment. Mm -hmm. Right. So can you talk a little yes. bit about that? Yes. So, well, the brain is not able to feel pain because the brain is in charge of feeling pain everywhere else in the body mm -hmm. and making sure that we address that pain. Right. If we had pain receptors in the brain, we would be really in trouble because we just couldn't think straight most of the right. time. Um, the, the problem with that is that it's very hard to, to understand the health status of your brain, that we have no access to what's going on inside your brain. Is mm. your brain in trouble? We don't know. And we will not know until there are symptoms that become evident in terms of behavior or like movement disorder mm. or insomnia mm. or basically we need a deficit to know that the brain is in trouble. And that also speaks to prevention, really. Yeah. We should not wait that long because that means then 
um, whatever is going on in the brain that's causing the symptom has reached and passed a threshold that just makes the brain itself unable to deal with that. Mm. So by the time you get to the point, you have a disease or you have a condition that is severe and needs attention. And now we're able to look again, look at the organ that yes. was so hidden yeah. and so protective. And you can see where the potential areas might be or potential areas of trouble. And yes. you can prescribe certain plan of action yes, based on for that. Sure. For sure. We, we do... Um, so the Alzheimer's prevention clinic that I'm associate director of, we do brain imaging on all the patients in my studies. And, and also I used to do it at NYU for 12 years mm -hmm. before I moved to Cornell. And in younger people, it's rare to find like a, a, an actual severe problem, but it's very common to, to find aneurysms, that are still growing, uh, brain tumors. You know, they're so common. Wow. They're so much more common than than anybody would imagine, and they're not necessarily malignant. You know, they could yeah. be benign, but it's something that requires attention. Right. And if you have some symptoms of memory loss and confusion, it's very likely because something is pushing against your brain and it's creating issues. Or um, hydrocephalus, that when you have too much fluid inside your brain, or brain inflammation, mm. that's a problem. Or brain atrophy is something we need to address. Mm. And a lot, of, um, a lot of things that happen in the brain are really related to food and to food choices because the brain uses neurotransmitters yeah. to communicate, for brain cells to communicate with each other. They use neurotransmitters like uh, serotonin, which I'm sure you mm -hmm. talk about in your book, uh, dopamine, acetylcholine, which is the neurotransmitter that makes memories inside your brain. And they're all built on food on very specific nutrients that the brain needs in order to make these neurotransmitters. Yeah, and I mm. wanna get all into that. <laughs> I wanna ask you first about this concept that the first time I've seen this was this concept of brain reserve. Yes. Can you talk about that, please? Sure, so um, because brain cells are by and large irreplaceable, uh, the health and the quality of your brain cells give you some kind of reserve, mm. which is basically, it's like um, the higher the quality of your cells, the more resilient your cells are, mm -hmm. the healthier your cells are, uh, the more interconnected your brain is, um, the higher its ability to withstand insults down the line, right? So it, it makes sense that the healthier you are, um, the better you'll be able to face a number of, of issues down the line. You get a cold, you just get back in shape in a day. Mm. But if your baseline is, is not that good, then it's much easier to get sick or to be more vulnerable to a number of things that can happen. Mm. So it's kind of like a reservoir. Yes. Like a just utility mm. can go in, you know, if, it, if it's built up in a strong way. Yes. Okay, so mm -hmm. we really want to... It gives you resilience against yes, disease and against aging. And there's something that, that we need to cultivate really over a lifetime. And it's not just genetic. So when this concept developed, uh, it was assumed that your genes played a huge role in determining your brain reserve, mm. right? And then mm -hmm. some people are just more genetically blessed than others. Mm. And now instead, it, it turns out that it's really, it, sure, there, there is a genetic component. There's yeah. some kind of blueprint that comes from your parents and from your DNA. But the way you live your life, has a huge effect on the health of your brain. Yeah. 
So shout out to people that are blessed with the the good brain, but also there's, we all really are. We have so much potential and man, this is so fascinating. So let's talk about food. Let's talk about how food relates Mm -hmm. to the form and function of the brain. First, let's start with the form of the brain itself. Hmm. What are our brains made out of? Ah, well, the, the, our brains are made of food, are made of nutrients, right? So the brain is made of um, chemical... Wait, hold on. Mon- yes. So I just want people to get this. Your brain, responsible for everything in your reality, is made of the food you eat. Please continue. <laughs> well, so the brain is made of nutrients. The, made, the brain is made of, of chemical molecules that we call nutrients, with the difference that the brain makes a lot of the nutrients on its own, right? Right. So, which is different for people because we might think like this, these Cheetos or whatever is yeah. going to become my brain. It doesn't no. work like that. No, it doesn't work like that. Although Whereas, they will have a, an impact. Yeah, definitely have an impact, but more likely, you know, you can make other tissues out of these different foods. Whereas Much your brain makes a lot of these nutrients or these compounds itself, which itself. is very, very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to, to clarify that, you know, I read it very often that the brain is made of fat, and so we should eat a lot of fat to replenish brain fat. And uh, cholesterol you know, is a very prevalent brain fat, and saturated fat is prevalent in the brain. But in truth, uh, the brain makes them on its own. So cholesterol is made only, only, by the brain as soon as we're born. And brain cholesterol is completely sealed away from the rest of the body for the entire time that we're alive. There are no gates in the blood-brain barrier Mm. for cholesterol. So no cholesterol from food will ever be part of your brain. So that's the first thing. Uh, Saturated fat, there are gates for saturated fat, the smaller ones. Mm. But uh, what happens is that the brain um, opens the gates when we're little. So children, Uh, all the way throughout adolescence, but then these gates pretty much close. And that makes sense because of the... Because the neurons are done, right? The brain has already all the neurons that it needs. And so cholesterol and saturated fat in the brain only have a structural role. The brain cannot burn fat for energy. It is the only organ in the body that just can't burn fat for energy. So whatever fat is in the brain is just to give it structure. Right, and to just keep the neurons in a certain position and to wrap them with cholesterol and other fats so that it acts like um, a conductant so that the information, the electrical stimulus can fly faster mm-hmm. from one end to the neuron to the next neuron. Because the physical brain itself is mostly fat and water. Uh, mm, it's mostly water, 80%. Water and then fat yes. and then protein. Fat and protein is kind of a tie. Pretty close. Honestly. Yeah, once you take water out of the equation. And then probably vitamins and, and minerals. Yes, and very, very little carbs because they're just being used yeah. instantaneously. They just don't have time to sit around. But a lot of those fats, and again, it makes sense as well just with uh, nutrition for an infant, for example. Is you're going to have that breast constituent, milk. breast milk, it's going to mm-hmm. be more saturated fat. Yeah, you need and it. And yeah, that, that mm-hmm. makes but so much sense. But then you don't need it anymore when your brain is done. Right. Right. Once you have a brain. Yeah, I don't know who's making like breast just... milk smoothies out there. But, <laughs> well, in truth, I mean, I guess if you're getting any kind of milk, 
Never mind. No, well, <laughs> no, I, um, in principle, it makes sense, but not after a certain age. Right, right. I think. But so the only kind of fat that can get inside your brain and the brain needs and wants yeah. is called uh, long chain polyunsaturated fat. Which in, in English, yes. So that would be omega 3 and omega 6 yeah. polyunsaturated fatty acid or PUFA. Mm -hmm. So that's salmon. I think it's a and terrible, like that acronym is, it just sounds it's horrible. bad, right? It's Pufa, Mufa, SFA. Mufa? Mufa, oh my. I don't know if somebody called me a Mufa. <laughs> I don't know, like there's fighting words. Oh my goodness. So, and, yeah. but those omega 3s and omega 6s specifically are, those are essential. Those are essential fats. Yeah, these are, those are the only essential fatty you gotta acids get those that the brain cannot diet. make, and we need to, to eat them. Yeah. daily especially the omega-3s because um the typical western diet is pro-inflammatory it's very rich in foods that contain a lot of omega-6 mm -hmm. and so usually the ratio is like 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 yeah. whereas a good ratio for a healthy brain is more like 2 to 1 so yeah. 2 omega-6 for every one molecule of omega-3 that's the good ratio let's say yeah. 4 to 1 is acceptable but 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 is, is too much pro-inflammatory fat. Yeah. And I guess like a systemic inflammation, like that's going to affect our brain probably as oh, well. Oh, for sure. Yes, yeah. yes. So the brain is the most metabolically active organ in the body, right? It takes over 20% of the entire energy production in, in, inside the body. But the brain is also really delicate. It's very, very sensitive to oxidative stress, which is the formation of free mm -hmm. radicals. Yeah. And so it, it's very easily inflamed and oxidized, which is like the rusting effect that makes your cells age faster. So a pro-inflammatory diet just literally makes your brain age faster. Mm. You don't want that. We don't want that. No. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so physical structure, we've got water, fat, protein, yes. uh, minerals and vitamins. Yeah. Specifically, and we'll get into some foods and just dive a little bit deeper on those omega six yeah, in a moment. This is a lot of chemistry. <laughs> so I want to ask you about again, just to reiterate a little bit about this blood brain barrier, mm -hmm. right? Or the BBB. BBB. Yes. Make, since we're making acronym, not Big Baller brand. So no disrespect to is it Lavar Ball? I don't know the Ball know. family. Just yeah, don't worry about it. You just keep doing science. <laughs> um, but. Uh, this blood-brain barrier is very specific, and you said there's about 30 things, just yeah. around 30 things, 30 nutrients that are yeah. going to be able to actually access and get in the brain, in the brain mm -hmm. itself, because your brain is very selective. Even though yes. it's very metabolically active, I think it's somewhere it's like using like 20, 25% of your yeah. caloric intake. Yeah. Crazy. Yes. But it's very selective. It's well, very thank choosy. Thank God it does. Now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a choosy lover. Um, so... I want to just circle back really quickly and ask you about the cholesterol. So the yes. cholesterol, obviously, dietarily, we're seeing new insights about it being important. for. But first of all, your, your body's making a nice amount of it, you know, your liver, yes. um, to do these processes because it's a kind of a prerequisite to making sex hormones, for example. Yeah, for sure. But that dietary form of cholesterol is not the same that you're going to see in your brain because, no. again, your brain mm -hmm. is able to make its own. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So... In, so the brain makes neurosteroids okay. that are different from mm, the rest wow. of the body. So, yeah, and cholesterol is, mm. is a special blend inside the brain, which is different from, from the rest of you. I mean, it's the same substance, but it has different uses and 
different functions and just can't get in touch with, with the rest of the cholesterol. So, you know, and there's blogs or books that say you should eat a lot of fat to get smarter or happier or whatnot. Mm. It's just, just not true. It's yeah. just plainly Doesn't work not like true. That. No, but they can increase your risk of heart disease. Yeah. And then, so Especially that's something to consider. So we have shown that even though these fats, uh, cholesterol, saturated fat, transunsaturated fat, they can't get inside the brain. They do have some indirect effects because not for everybody, but in, in, peop in some people, they really can produce inflammation. Mm -hmm. And the inflammation that you have in the rest of your body is able to get in the brain as well because mm -hmm. cytokines can cross. Mm. the blood brain barrier it's so if you have inflammation in the yeah, rest of you it can also affect your brain indirectly and of course if your heart is suffering then your brain suffers as well mm. right if it's yeah. bad for your heart it's bad for your brain yeah there's okay. a saying in cardiology that you're you're only as old as your arteries are mm. which is so true it's really true because if your arteries are not nice and clean yeah. then blood can't get to the brain oxygen can get to your brain cannot yeah. get inside your brain and then your brain starts aging faster mm. because it really needs it like constant. Like blood flow to the head is, is a major predictor of, of brain health, got it. brain function. So we've got water, got we've water. got uh, fat, <laughs> slightly fat. more fat than protein, protein. is close. Mm -hmm. So with protein, all protein or? Essential. Essential. Essential amino acids. Yes. So, so those are the ones number. we're looking for in our diet. Yes. So with that said, these essential aminos, so those are some of the ones that the brain has those gates for. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Got it. So <laughs> there's certain vitamins, minerals, proteins, and fats. Yeah. So I want to now talk about function. So we talked about form, yes. kind of what the brain is made mm -hmm. of. So let's talk about which nutrients do we know are critical for the function of a healthy brain. Mm. And I want to go first through some lesser known ones and then get okay. more to the known ones. It was okay. a lot, everybody at this point hopefully has heard about the importance of omega-3s for their brain. But sure. now to know specifically from you, uh -huh. a neuroscientist, that this is actually getting there. I want to talk <laughs> about that for sure. But let's start with, let's talk about choline. Yeah. What is that? Let's talk about it. It's what a B is, vitamin. Yeah. <laughs> so choline is, is a B vitamin mm -hmm. that is used by the brain to produce acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is a major uh, neurotransmitter mm -hmm. that the brain uses to produce memories. Mm. So we need B vitamins, especially choline. Did you say choline or choline? Choline. Choline. Okay, so I'll say that But too. I like how you say in it Italian, too. I say choline. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's the cutest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so choline, and for yes. me, you know, I would go for eggs. Yes. I would go for bee pollen. Is yes. a good source. Royal jelly. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. See, pollen. and I didn't see this in your book. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not through all the book yet, which I love this book. I'm going to, there are certain books that I just feel that it's like mandatory. Like if you really want to be um, really masterful about your health, mm -hmm. I think it's so important for us to understand our brains. I agree and I cannot believe there's not a brain food book specifically. And then um, created by somebody who's been in the lab and like looking at this stuff. And it's just like, mm. you're basically like an, an X-Men. You're like an, a mutant <laughs> of health, you know, like to have both of those sides. It is And bizarre. so it's it like a, a big confirmation mm. for certain things. And other things just like, well, that makes sense. Mm. You know, let's just like toss that whole concept out. 
And so uh, I'm just, I love your book. So you. choline is one of them. Yes, I have more sources. Oh, can we talk about caviar or fish eggs? Let's go. Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. So What's the other? There's caviar and there's some other little eggs as some well. Some roe. Roe, yes, the roe. Roe, yeah, okay. because, roe, you know, row your boat. You know, Let's I didn't go. know until the book came out that in the States, caviar is really fancy food. Yeah. In Italy, there is no dis- there is no distinction between the fancy black caviar mm. and just fish eggs. Mm. We just use the words the word caviar for everything. Yeah. And so when the book came out, I even have it on the cover. Mm-hmm. If you see one of my little this is caviar, right? It's yeah. Salmon roe. Yeah. It's my number one brain food. And everybody was wow. like, But it's too expensive. It was like, but fish eggs are not really yeah. that expensive. And so I learned that. I immediately you have to clarify salmon roe. Or fish eggs. <laughs> yeah. When I heard caviar, I immediately thought of like Scrooge McDuck, ah. like super wealthy, you no, know, great poupon, you know. It doesn't have to yeah. be. No, no, no. Fish yeah. eggs are actually not that expensive. So, but so they're the best. Um, so in, the nutritional composition of caviar or fish eggs in general is pretty much a perfect complement to the, to the nutritional composition of the brain. Mm. It's really a one-on-one because mm-hmm. they're very rich in choline and uh, choline, um, phospholipids, omega-3 fatty acids, a good amount of protein, but they also contain um, antioxidant vitamins. It contains vitamin A, vitamin C in some amounts, vitamin a little bit of vitamin E, and mostly selenium. Yeah, and selenium, selenium. Is, a min- is a very rare mineral. And it's super, super important. It's very for a lot important of because yeah. it's a strong antioxidant. And it's really hard to find in foods like Brazil nuts. Brazil nuts, yeah. Are a good source, but caviar or fish eggs are an excellent source. Look at so, that. So yeah. mm-hmm. I always mention it because, of course, nobody eats caviar every day. Yeah. But you know, once in a while, if yeah. it happens, add just that to so your. So you know, it's also really good for your brain. Yeah, add that to your 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 superhero utility belt of things to have access to you know but it's again it's just having the awareness yes and it's also, just a curiosity yeah and the it's stigmas attached because for, there's for, actually a reason to eat it it's yeah. a good reason to eat it for me hearing that like immediately in the book i'm like oh that's fancy mm, like it popped up in my mind yeah. but it's a cultural it difference is. you know it is it is okay so we've got choline is one let's talk about tryptophan let's talk about tryptophan so tryptophan is an essential amino acid so it it comes from protein that the brain uses to make serotonin a serotonin is a neurotransmitter that is involved in a number of functions uh, like mood sleep but also in memory we don't usually associate mm. yeah. serotonin with memory but actually has a really strong impact and the, the thing about tryptophan is that you know most people will just say well it, it's everywhere and it's in many many different foods mm. but the point is that um, it comes usually with a lot of other amino acids that compete with each other to get passage inside the brain. So the, the gates are the same, mm-hmm. right? And so tryptophan yeah, that, is usually yeah. the one that's left behind. Mm. So I think it's important to focus on foods that contain more tryptophan than, than the other ones. Why is tryptophan ones? left behind? Is it slow? Is it... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because I think it's just not as abundant. So yeah, if you have a lot thing, of yeah. like tyrosine and a little right, bit of right. tryptophan, you're much more likely to get a lot of the, of the amino acid that is more abundant. Yeah. And that's why you need foods that are particularly rich in tryptophan. That's super important. Mm-hmm. So this is Especially essential. before bedtime. Yes. Right? And this essential amino, so it's used to build serotonin, yes. which is a 
precursor for melatonin. Oh, sir. Mm -hmm. All right. So, but also there's so much news today about serotonin and like the Mm -hmm. kind of this happy neurotransmitter and then even antidepressants, a lot of them, you know, the SSRIs. Mm -hmm. So what the most important thing is like, are we even making it in the first place? Right. And so this Mm -hmm. is one of the keys. So tryptophan, but when I hear tryptophan, because just, you know, past and going through life, but I know better today, but I would associate like Thanksgiving turkey. And you wrote about it in the yes. book too, because you're like, oh, we eat the turkey, tryptophan, you get sleepy. No, it's because- it's you eat too much. Yes, you just like <laughs> ate, like yeah. there's no tomorrow because I've done that. Like this is the last day of my life. I'm going to eat everything. <laughs> That's how we get on the holiday. Like I'm just going to, you know, but, and it's an experience, you know, we, we feast, but it's not the tryptophan, yeah, by no, the way. Milk is a better, is a better source. The mm-hmm. whole milk, mm-hmm. and I'm sure everybody does. And when you when you're little, you you give warm milk with honey mm-hmm. to kids to help them sleep. Yeah, and that's because there's tryptophan in the whole milk. Yeah. is a good source. And um, if you combine carbohydrates with tryptophan, that actually helps push the tryptophan inside your brain. And you have so lactase. That's why you want to there. Oh, with the sugar too with from the, the sugar. honey. Yeah. Okay. The sugar from the honey. So, but now are we talking about milk from a uh, cow? Usually, uh, but goat is actually better. Okay, and also, like, is it genetically modified? No. You know, are no. we talking about like the cows like eating? You know, I don't know. Corn. Candy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Grains, <laughs> because usually true story, good. there was this big spill that happened. It was like all these red skittles. That coated the the freeway. You didn't see this? No. Okay. I mean, this was a while back, but this was going for feed for livestock. Really? Yes. Wow. Nuts. I think this was in Florida. Okay. I gotta look this up. <laughs> we gotta put it in the okay. show notes so it's not like wait. A minute. But some people are gonna know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, and it's crazy. Like the stuff that you and I, and I've been pressing this in the culture. Now I see it everywhere. I'm not saying that I originated this idea, but you know, you are what you eat. Eight. It's yes. not just you are yes. what you eat. No, it's true. And yes. so, like, making sure that we're getting these different animal foods from healthier animals. And, of course, Absolutely. you do you do make that um, distinction in the book as well. Yes. So is- I, I believe in organic, especially for women, mm. if mm. we can mention that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, for women, changes in hormonal levels are a natural problem that so many people just don't ever get to talk about. You know, women um, go through a series of endocrine transition stages as we mature through puberty. But then the the most shocking one, perhaps, is menopause. And menopause is the loss of estrogen and progesterone and other hormones that impacts everything inside your body, but also your brain, which we have shown with brain scans how for for many women, as they go through menopause, that's when Alzheimer's really begins Mm. in their brains. And something to know about women's hormones is that there are many substances that we put into our food, that we put in the environment, that we put on our skin, that are xenoestrogens. They're foreign estrogens, and they are known to really mess up your own estrogen inside your body. So they act like estrogens, but they make everything worse. Like if you have a predisposition to breast cancer, they're, they're likely to push you to actually get breast cancer. And this is the, the Society for Neuroendocrinologists. Who, and they actually, they, they put out a warning because we are drowning in plastic. And mm-hmm. if you have food that is contained in plastic and if you heat up the plastic, 
then all these substances that are known to mess up your estrogens will just leak into your foods and then you end up That's eating nice. them and that really creates issues like um men boobs mm-hmm. you know or the fact that women then girls become women at such a young age yeah. nowadays this is it's not just first normal. grade right it's, just, it's yeah. absolutely nuts and like it's you just said so these xenoestrogens fit into receptor sites and like yes. basically turn on these estrogen driven mm-hmm. programs yes it just all makes yeah, sense you said it really well. and so <laughs> well, you. You know. <laughs> and so what's so interesting about it is like you just mentioned these xenoestrogens maybe from bisphenol a or something like that from plastics which yeah. is a fossil fuel right uh-huh. and so like this is let's not even go down that we're talking about organic and well, but that's why pesticides, organic herbicides, so rodenticides. Many of them are estrogenic. Yeah, they're yeah. all estrogenic. Or neurogenic. Some or, of them are well, like... Well, estrogen is a, is, a, is a brain hormone. Yeah. You know, we oh. tend to associate hot flashes and nice sweats and depression with, together. with your ovaries, but they, these symptoms don't originate in your ovaries. They start inside your brain because estrogen has a strong, strong effect inside the brain. And food has an effect as well because food also impacts hormonal health in, in a big way. Yeah. Let's go to uh, phenylalanine. Phenylalanine, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, let's talk about it. So dopamine mm-hmm. is another neurotransmitter that has a lot of different function in the brain. It's really important for movement and coordination, but also for like reward-driven behavior and motivation. Mm-hmm. And dopamine is made of uh, an amino acid called tyrosine. And tyrosine, in turn, is made uh, from phenylalanine. Mm-hmm. So you need to make sure you have enough in the diet. But that's easy enough to do. It's not a, diff- it's not a difficult source to find. It's very abundant in all sorts of animal foods and fish. I would say fish, if you need to get you know, good lean protein, fish is a great source. Also, fish is a great source of omega-3 fatty acids. Right. So the you fat get the power pack. So you can get, yeah. yeah. And then everybody mm-hmm. goes like, how about mercury? Yeah. Right. How about it? How about it? So there are, um, it depends on, on how big the fish is, right? So the bigger it is, the higher the chances of mercury contamination. Mm. Uh, so it's really important to, to go for uh, fatty fish for the brain. I'm talking about the brain, mm-hmm. right? So fatty fish, especially cold water fatty fish, which mm. is like salmon, uh, herring, trout, but also the smaller ones like mackerel, bluefish, sardines, anchovies. And the smaller ones like anchovies and sardines, they're very unlikely to have any mercury. Mm. Yes. Interesting. Mm. And so the, your so body can actually tolerate some, by the yes, way. You know, it's not like mercury touches you and you disappear. No, of you course. Know, well, so. so how much fish do you eat? Yeah. I mean, this, we're talking trace, yeah. right? Trace amount of mercury, not, yeah. not the whole that. I mean, there's, there's, there's always something to be said about common sense, I think, right? right. You can't yeah. eat fish every single day just because it doesn't make sense to do that. And also you can't eat a pound, yeah. right? A good portion, depending on how tall and how muscular you are, but usually three, three ounces. I didn't know you noticed my muscles. Was, so this is, I'm <laughs> just kidding. So phenylalanine is a precursor, tyrosine. Yes. And then we get... Dopamine. Dopamine, mm-hmm. which is, we're talking about our drive. We're talking about yes. happiness. Motivation. We're talking about reward. Mm-hmm. You Playing need games. this one. 
Yeah. When you're playing video games, it's dopamine that makes you feel like, mm. yeah. And you miss out on that more. without this. Wow. So by the way, <laughs> another source, mm. I'm going to throw this in here for everybody. It's a perfect place. Phenylalanine, spirulina. Oh, the, yeah, there spirulina. you go. You talked about spirulina uh -huh. in your book. Yes. So this is a brand new study. I literally just came across this 2018 study, brand new, just came out. This was published in Nutritional Neuroscience. Investigated whether it was possible to treat severe neonatal infection by administering a spirulina-enriched diet to the nursing mother. So not even directly to the baby, to the mom. And the researchers stated that severe infection and the associated brain inflammation can cause long-term changes to the developing brain due to oxidative stress, even after the original infection has been treated and it's mm. gone. And what they found was, after they compiled the data, a spirulina-enriched diet given to lactating mothers reduced the level of brain inflammation, all right? So spirulina reduced the levels of brain inflammation and provided an antioxidant defense for the developing neonatal brain, which this is the questions that we would ask our incredible guests, like how are they actually measuring this stuff? And so um, she's actually doing the work and in the lab and looking at things like this. And so, by the way, guys, spirulina, it's not the best. Let's just be honest. Um, it's not like, oh my, oh my goodness, I cannot wait to eat spirulina today. But it tastes really good in guacamole. I don't know if you've ever had this. No, I never tried. Yes, put I a will. little, little, but don't go too hard. Yeah. It changes to a weird color. It's like sure. not from this planet, but it, it actually tastes really good. It's a good compliment. And it makes sense. Spirulina is one of the primary kind of protein sources for mm -hmm. like the Aztecs. You know, it's just, don't get me started. But also... For me, I get this in a formula along with um, chlorella, moringa, and ashwagandha in this product called Organifi. And so this is the only, and one of the big issues is like, what are they doing to the supplement before they get it to you? Like, is this actually going to be a whole food kind of extract or is mm. it like heated, fried, right. dyed, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> or synthetic source of yeah. these nutrients. And so they do a low temperature process and they actually make it taste good. So this is, I've tried literally probably 20 different green blends over the years, in the last 15 years. Finally, one that tastes amazing, my kids like it, like getting their dose of spirulina and moringa and all that good stuff. And I highly recommend folks check it out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model. You get 20% off with Organifi. All right, so head over, check it out. It feels good, like it makes you feel clean inside. All right, so. I put it in my energy bars. I you make do. energy bars. You make your home. own. I make my own, you I don't do that trust. Too. So, yeah, I'll send you the recipe. And I, I put spirulina. So Lily, my daughter, also likes them very much. Ah, oh, I love that. Mm. It, what else you put in these, by the way, since you're talking about it, what else oh, goes into the? So I have bran, oat mm -hmm. bran, um, flax seeds, yeah. I use no, omega threes. This ALA. No, no, I don't do supplements. No, much. make the uh, flaxseed. Oh, the flaxseed for yeah. omega three. Yes. Yeah, yes but so it's so ALA use, though. Uh, ALA. Yes. This is the vegan or the vegetarian plant-based source of omega threes. So what happens is that the brain uh, has access to ALA, EPA, and DHA, all three mm. of them, but needs DHA the most. Mm. So the only natural source of DHA is from fish and seafood basically mm -hmm. yeah. but the brain can use the other two forms and convert it. them yeah. into the ha the problem with ala is that 
over 75% is lost in the conversion. Yeah. So when somebody is vegan and says, can I take this, you know, ALA, yeah. the, the plant-based omega-3 supplements, they're like, yes, you can, but you need to take more to achieve the same result because 70% is lost. And one thing to keep in mind is that omega-3 actually interacts badly with specific medications, mm -hmm. blood thinners, yeah. like aspirin. Mm -hmm. So it's very dangerous mm -hmm. to, wow, to take these take supplements. Consideration, if, wow. And yeah, so- for people over 60 actually mm -hmm. is, is a big health hazard. Yeah, and so folks that are taking a, a vegan approach is also the algae oils potentially could be- Yes. Mm -hmm. But as you well. need more. You need more. It's yeah, ALA. still the conversion. Yes. But just getting more of a concentrated dose. Uh -huh. So these are those areas of like, whatever you know might be ethics or whatever the case might be, where you got to get into like, oh, what am I doing for my, mm -hmm. for myself as a human, yeah. versus you know my belief system and finding that line that you can yeah. straddle to make sure that you're still taking care of yourself. Yes. So last one I'm going to ask you about. Again, there's so many things I want to ask you about. More. Is <laughs> actually really quickly, can we talk about phospholipids? Sure. So phospholipids are actually, that's really the main brain fat. Yeah. We always think about cholesterol, but the brain contains more phospholipids. And they really are so important because they keep your, your brain cell membranes fluid and flexible, mm -hmm. which is crucial for the brain to function yeah. and there are many different kinds of phospholipids there there's a phosphatidylcholine there's phosphatidylserine mm -hmm. so they are a fatty acid group connected with uh, either amino acids or vitamins okay right and so phosphatidylcholine which is perhaps the most important in many ways um, has the same origin Basically, so it comes from foods that are very rich in omega-3 fatty acids, but also uh, sweet peas are really mm. good sources. Interesting, uh -huh. interesting. Like crustaceans, like crab and yeah. all kinds of different fish and shellfish, but also sweet peas. There was another one I wrote it down. Oh, cucumber. Cucumber, really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Not as much as fish, but yeah. you still get some. And also there's this thing, I tapioca. Tapioca, yeah, there I know you about that. So yeah. that's also a very good source. Wow. Do you, you, I, know, I don't know. I never tried it. So it can be, it's great for like baking, uh, you know, a like lot of flour. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it's especially like if you're using alternative flours instead of, you know, the wheat. Yeah. Bleached, mm -hmm. fried, dyed, fricasseed, whatever <laughs> flour. But, you know, like yeah. if people are using like coconut flour, yes. it can really help um, to kind of add that, mm, that so missing note. A bit more texture. Yeah. Perhaps. So, um, last one I want to ask you about, which wasn't the phospholipids, the okay. omega-3s. So, let's circle yeah. back to the omega-3s mm -hmm. and talk about, well, you've mentioned it several times, but yes. let's pin down best sources because it's essential. Right. So, the best sources, it depends if, if we're interested in animal sources or plant sources. What do we start with? Animals, because they're better. Both. Right? So, fish. Um, well, caviar is my number one, or salmon raw, or mm -hmm. fish eggs are really the, the most, uh, the highest and richest sources on the planet. Salmon is good, but not nearly as rich, frankly. Uh, herring, mackerel, sardines, anchovies, trout, fatty, fatty fish. Got it, got mm -hmm. it. And then for the vegetarian side, for the we plant got source is chia. Flax seeds. Chia, yes, but flax seeds are better. Flax mm -hmm. seeds and hemp. And hemp, yeah, big fan. It's big in California. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
uh, chia seeds, walnuts, soybeans, yeah. and then oats, spirulina. spirulina. That's what I was trying. Yeah, it's yeah. actually a good source of omega threes. All right, I hope that you're enjoying this information so far. And in this next conversation, you're going to be learning about some remarkable distinctions between men's and women's brains and important biases to be aware of in healthcare overall, plus many more brain-boosting nutrition and lifestyle tips. Here's more from Dr. Lisa Moscone. Did you know about how women have been excluded from research? No. So many people don't. That's yeah. the thing. I would say most people don't, don't know that. So many scientists don't know either. I never thought of all the thousands of studies I've read, yeah. I've never thought about that distinction. And yeah. you mentioned it very clearly that the medical system is kind of uniformly excluded women. Right. Uh, and, and basically treating women as just smaller men when we're talking yes. about the medical data. Can you right. talk about that a little bit? Yes. So the first part of the book is really uh, a description of how women have been systematically excluded from medical research, which mm. is not to say there's a conspiracy yeah. against women, but it's just something that happened as a result of a number of biases, if you will. And so I use this term bikini medicine, which is an unfortunate term, if you, if you will, but it's quite to the point um, describing how historically most medical professionals really actually believed that men and women were essentially the same person, just with different reproductive organs. So setting those parts of the body aside, as if one could, meant that most professionals, most doctors, would diagnose and treat both sexes the same exact way. And basically, there's a whole worldview that got derived from that model, which makes women's health, the field, biased to start with. Because if you go to a doctor and say, can you look at this female patient through the lenses of women's health, they're going to do a pap test mm -hmm. to check your cervix for cancer. Standard. They're going to do a mammogram if you're over 42 or 40, depending on yeah. the doctor. They might do a blood test to check your sex hormones for fertility or menopause and whatnot. But again, women's health is confined to the health of a reproductive organs. And that's really a direct consequence of a very reductive understanding of what a woman is to start with. Yeah. Because clearly women are not the same as smaller men yeah. with different reproductive organs. They, they were somewhat different systems. Yeah. And it's not in any way to exaggerate the differences. So it's not like women have some parts that men don't have, well, except for yeah. the reproductive <laughs> organs, right? But when we're thinking about, for example, women's brains, which is really the focus of my research, anatomically, we're basically the same, but the functionality of the brain is different. And there are so many things that can happen in the brain that happen more to women than to men, or only to women and not to men, and only to men and not to women, yeah. right? But we understand men's risk factors a lot better then we understand what can happen to women. Yeah. So that's really why I'm doing this. Yeah, and it's so important because as you outlined, um, the first thing I wanna make clear, which you alluded to already, is that it's not like some conspiracy, but there was some early reasons why this kind of evolved into this, which is women's bodies tend to create some curveballs when doing clinical trials, like right. pregnancy. Right, getting pregnant was a big one. Mm -hmm. So what's happened, um, was that there was a drug, 
thalidomide that was given to women, including pregnant women, to mm. deal with symptoms like nausea. Mm. And then it turned out that the drug actually had a terrible impact on the baby. And many babies were born with deformities or with severe medical issues. And so the drug was reevaluated and was banned in the United States. But at the same time, the FDA really took a cautionary stance mm -hmm and decided to exclude women of childbearing age from experimental clinical trials, where you still don't quite know side effects as well as you should, right? Yeah. But then, that's so excluding women, a lot of people. But that's excluding a lot of women because it's any woman from puberty through menopause, right? So what happened then is then just, I, I think it was really other concerns for the babies and the women to some extent, the, the new mothers, that women were just excluded from all clinical trials, not the phase one clinical trials, but just from all medical research. And by doing that, women were no longer participating in research, but they were also no longer informing research. And it is true that our bodies are more cyclical in nature than a man's body. And if you're a scientist, you have to deal with that. Yeah. But that's not that hard to do, yeah. right, to be honest. And instead, a decision was made to just focus more on men, assuming that especially when it came to heart, lungs, and brain, that would also, whatever results investigators found, would also apply to women. Mm. And that turned out to be not the case yeah. you know, in a big way. And even when women are included, and again, just thanks to your data and me learning this, yes. it tends to be everybody's lumped together. All yes. the data's lumped together. It's not giving a distinction between this is something for women's health specifically, yes. this is something for men's health. And with that said, we parlay into this discussion of the female brain right. and how different it is mm -hmm. under these different measures, whether it's like some kind of a... Um, uh, nutritive intervention or medical yes. intervention, it's going to impact women's brains differently. So I want to yes. talk about the difference yes. with <laughs> the female brain because it's fascinating. The anatomy is not quite different. Like if you look at brain scans and you don't know the gender of the person that you're taking a picture of, there's no way of telling this brain belongs to a woman, this other brain belongs to a man. Other than on average, women's brains are slightly smaller because we are just smaller on average than men. But once you adjust for head size, pretty much volumetrically speaking, there are no strong gender differences. The differences that matter most are in the functionality of the brain and the biochemistry of the brain. And I've been looking into that for a really long time because of personal reasons. I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease that affects the women in my family quite a lot. So my grandma, my grandmother, was one of four siblings, and there were three sisters and one brother. And all three sisters got dementia and died of dementia, whereas the brother was spared. And that was quite shocking, also because I'm from Italy, as you know, I'm from Florence in Italy, and especially back then, there was no assisted living. So your grandparents live with you, mm. period. And then the family, and especially my mom, became the primary caregiver for my grandmother. And then 
my aunt started taking care of the other sisters who got dementia. Everybody, I mean, it was like a 10 years process. Mm. And it was very painful as, as anyone can imagine. And that really led me to think about Alzheimer's disease as a connection with sex and gender, which was really not a topic of conversation back then. At I've all. been doing this for almost 20 years. Just really, you know, and I've seen the field just change so much. And something that many people are not aware of is that women's brains have very specific risks that we usually underestimate and kind of put down to, you know, perhaps you're having a bad day or maybe you're PMS. But in reality, women are twice as likely as men to have anxiety and depression. We're three times more likely to have an autoimmune disorder, including those that attack the brain, like multiple sclerosis. We're four times more likely to have headaches and migraines, as any man knows. <laughs> We're more likely to even get meningiomas, which are the most common form of brain tumors, especially during menopause, and we're far more likely to die of a stroke. And on top of all that, Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia on the planet, affects more women than men. So of every three Alzheimer's patients, two are women, mm. which means that for every man suffering from Alzheimer's disease, there are two women. And that's an enormous amount of women. In the United States alone, Alzheimer's disease affects almost 6 million people. And if we don't find solutions, by the year 2050, it's going to grow to like 15 million, which is like, for context, is the populations of New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles put together. Mm. So it's a huge amount of people, and two-thirds of all those people might be women. So we had some problems here, yeah. and it's important to find solutions. So this is really what I was trying to do with the book. Not just be super depressing. <laughs> it's not a yeah. downer, I promise. It's really it's empowering. about acknowledging the yeah. problem, explaining how we got ourselves in this situation, and what we can do to really reverse this problem and, and optimize cognitive health and brain health in women. Those are the scans I want to show you. There are some wonderful brain imaging scans in the book as well, just to kind of highlight some of these things. We look at premenopause, postmenopause, the brain really does change. It does change. Um, and But one of those physical aspects, just to pivot back a little bit, mm -hmm. and it just of course made so much sense when you talked about it, that the, one of the physical is still, it'd be difficult to see if you don't have the trained eye looking for it, but the, I guess the hemispheres of the brain for women, it's more, um, what's the what's the right word for it? Interconnected. Interconnected. Yes, well, I think the, the technical word is structural con connectivity. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so what happens, just taking a step back, just a quick one, is that women are born with two X chromosomes and men are born with an X and a Y. And those genetic differences do matter also in terms of brain development. And I think it's important to clarify that because most people think of this XX and XY as only involved in reproduction. But in reality, there are many genes on these chromosomes that are directly involved in brain function. Mm -hmm. And something that is a curious fact is that the X chromosome, which women have two of, are much bigger than the Y chromosome. Mm -hmm. So each one has 1,098 genes, whereas the Y chromosome has only 78. 
Yes, and many of these extra 1,000 chromosomes that women carry are really involved in brain function. So there's something there that starts immediately at the time of conception because this cell that is born with the XX is going to develop and mature and migrate differently than the other cell that is born with an XY. And one of the big differences is the type and quality of the hormones that are going to be produced in those brains. So the XY chromosome dictates that that baby is going to start making androgens, like testosterone, which are male hormones. So the brain, because these chromosomes are also part of our brains, right, and they're involved in brain function, so the brain is also really going to be wired to respond more to the androgens than testosterone, because boys have very little estrogens. For girls, it's exactly the opposite, right? We make a fraction of the amount of androgens, and we make a thousand times more estrogens, this figure of speech. But our brains are really wired to respond to the estrogens. Mm, and the way that right. works is that we have little receptors in many parts of the brain that are specific to that type of hormones. So our brain tissue is populated by estrogen receptors they specifically bind to estrogens. It's like a key in the lock. Mm -hmm. And when the binding happens, then there's a lot of things that happen in the neurons downstream, especially energy production. So hormones, estrogens in particular, in the female brain are really strongly involved in energy levels in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so what happens as these baby brains age and go through puberty and then through a number of different phases of life is that at some point we reach midlife and that's when things start going downhill for women at least temporarily because testosterone doesn't run out until late in life most men don't lose their hormones until they, they they're in their 70s or 80s of course there's a little bit of a change but it's not nearly as dramatic as what happens to women in menopause and perimenopause where we basically lose our hormones like boom they just literally peak down mm. and that has an effect on the brain which we have demonstrated using brain scans perhaps for the first time as far as i know so that was quite shocking is that image in the book that you mentioned yeah this was like, because I think the issue is that we label these as sex hormones yes. and it's kind of the end of the story, but understanding there's right. so many more receptors, there's a lot more activity going on the brain in the brain for women as far as estrogen and yes. all the influences that this has. And so that starts to open up the case for when you shift away from having this uh, estrogen mm -hmm. production yeah. and then we see paralleled all of these issues with cognitive decline, uh, Alzheimer's, that are so much higher in women, mm -hmm. and we're not talking about this, we're right. not having this conversation. Right. So estrogen is just, it's so much more than it's just so a sex hormone. It's so much more, thank you, yes. So hormones like estrogen are not only involved in reproduction, but also very closely in brain function. And estradiol in particular, which is the most potent form of estrogen, is really key for energy production in the brain, as well as growth, plasticity, and immunity. So what happens is that when your estradiol is high, 
as a woman, your brain energy is really high. But when your estrogens go down during menopause and perimenopause prior to that, then your brain energy also goes down. Your neurons slow down mm. and they start aging faster. And studies have shown that this process could even, in some women, not all women of course, but in some women, that is correlated with the formation of Alzheimer's plaques or amyloid plaques. Mm. And we have shown that using brain scans that that's really true. If a woman is predisposed to Alzheimer's disease, that shows up during menopause, which is 50. It's not age 70 or 80, it's 50 years old or earlier. I was just reading that 10% of menopausal women go through menopause before age 45. It's incredible, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so with that said, um, <laughs> some of the, so you mentioned that es estradiol, estradiol. Mm -hmm. so there are different forms of estrogen, which yes. I think is important to mention. It's not just one thing, it's yes. estrone and, yes, and uh, estriol. Yes. And so when we're looking at, which we'll get to hormone replacement or whatever the yes. case, we have to be mindful, like what kind of estrogen. We're replacing the estradiol. And so, that is the one that your body no longer makes yeah. after menopause and the estrone yeah. is the backup. Whereas the other, the third hormone, you only make it when you're pregnant. Uh, so you got yeah. the... And it makes you feel great, mm. but only for a few months. <laughs> and then that's it, you're on your own. So <laughs> we got people, you know, estrogens coming off the bench when they need to, you know, mm. but it, it's such a bigger conversation. Yeah. And so let's talk about some of the impacts that estrogen has on the brain. So you mentioned yes. like preventative, like, when it's around, there's less of an incidence of, you know, potentially the amyloid plaque formation. Yes. Yes. But what are some it of the things that estrogen does for the brain? Like what benefits does that do for a woman's brain? Well, many, many benefits. We refer to estrogen and specifically estradiol as a master regulator in the female brain because it's really involved in a number of functions that uh, you wouldn't even imagine because we never talk about it, mm -hmm. but really, um, Energy is, is the most important thing, and I, I, I know you love biology, so I'm going to go into it. Let's do it, yeah. uh, By energy, I mean um, the cerebral metabolic rates of glucose. So estrogen is something that activates neurons to burn glucose more efficiently. And glucose is the main energy substrate for neurons, especially. Mm -hmm. Right? So over 90% of synapses are glutamatergic and they really need glucose to, to fire. And um, the estrogen literally helps glucose enter the Krebs cycle and be shuttled into the mitochondria, which are the energy factory of the body and the brain. Yeah. So that's really important because that's the way that your brain produces the most ATP. And I know there's a lot being said about ketone bodies, but with the research, if anyone is thinking, well, then I should go on a keto diet, right? What the research has shown is that as you go through menopause, what you really want to do is to treat the root cause of this. So you want to have the hormones that allow your brain to burn the glucose, because if you do not, what happens is that uh, ketones are just not enough. And research, research has shown that, and at some point your brain just gets really confused and starts burning its own fat. And the structural uh, fat? Yes, the structural so fat dangerous. in the brain. And that's why we find white matter reductions mm -hmm. 
on brain scans is called catabolism. Is when I mean it's 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 not a good thing. Let's yeah. just say, let's just say that. So that's one reason that having enough of this hormone is really important to keep the brain structurally uh, solid and sound, but also to really support the functionality of neurons and just the health and the integrity of your membranes. Yeah. This is so, like again, super enlightening and... I'm so glad I get to talk about yeah. these things. I'm usually more like, yeah, you know, noodles burn sugar. <laughs> well, we love to geek out. Right. And uh, I love the fact that in the book, you said this, and this is a direct quote. You said, Alzheimer's isn't like you suddenly caught a cold. Rather, right. the disease is the result of a number of genetic, medical, and lifestyle events that have been happening along the way right because what we tend to think is that it's just happened yes the one day you go to the doctor and boom you have a diagnosis yeah and, and if we're talking about the story of estrogen it's a it's a kind of a it's a longer history you yes. know than then oh my estrogen is is turned off or whatever the case might be right. this is something that with with your our lifestyle and with mm -hmm. our focus on our brain health is going to determine what estrogen is doing pre-menopause, during, right. and after. After. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, for sure. And it's important to talk about this because that's quite an insight to associate menopause with Alzheimer's disease, right? Most people think of Alzheimer's as old age yeah. and menopause as middle age. But in reality, we know now that Alzheimer's disease starts with negative changes in the brain years if not decades before clinical symptoms emerge which is like in the 70s so the real onset of alzheimer's is more in midlife especially for women and it seems to really overlap with the transition to menopause and i i want to add this and then i'm going to stop the bad news but <laughs> uh, for most women menopause is around age 52 in the United States, 52, 53, but it can be much earlier, sometimes because of genetics, sometimes lifestyle, but very often because of medical interventions. And I would like to mention this because common examples are a hysterectomy and or an ophorectomy, which is the surgical removal of the uterus and or the ovaries. One in every nine American women has this procedure done in the course of their lifetime, very often before menopause, when they're young, in their 40s. And we unfortunately know that having the uterus and more so the ovaries removed prior to menopause correlates with a higher risk of future dementia in women. So yeah. this is something that I, I realize is depressing news and it's yeah. very upsetting news, but we also really we need to talk about it because so many women are not aware. Yeah. And it is important information to have because sometimes you get your uterus taken out because of fibroids. Yeah. You know, it's the most common cause yeah. of surgery. But we know from other work that very often fibroids respond to medical and lifestyle mm -hmm. treatments. Yeah. So there's, it's something that is worth looking into before your doctor even suggests the surgery. Yeah. So I just want to put it out there. Yeah, it's one more this is reason super important. to really yeah. consider reproductive organs not as something that you can just get rid of quickly. Right, right. Because right. It, this really goes back to this being a male-focused field, <laughs> you know, and just like, yeah, well, you're not going to need those anymore, you know. And I've seen this many times. It's actually 
one of the catalysts for me getting into the space and moving outside of fitness and focusing more on nutrition and health mm -hmm. is because of a patient I work with who uh, had fibroid tumors. And we were able to, and we did it, by the way, we did a, it was a while back, we did an episode on fibroids. So we'll put that in the show notes. Hmm. But we were able, she had fibroids the size of like, you know, uh, oranges. And yeah, yeah. they were able to dissolve the size of raisins within, you know, within a month's time. But this is, results not typical. Let me just be clear. No, but, but it can happen. Yeah. If, even if they don't dissolve in a month, you can still make it better. You yeah. can manage the symptoms. Often, not right. always, right. not always. We but if you be... can, I think it's really worth looking into that. Yeah. And this is even more of a good reason yeah. to... Just we need to be more judicious in owning, like, these are your organs. And let's, like, look, let's, yeah. let's take some time and kind of go through and look at all of our options before we have something taken out. It's, like, the biggest, right. you know, take home. And, again, um, I think it's important to get self-educated, which yes. is a book like this. This is a... This is mandatory reading for any woman. <laughs> and you. also, if you love women, you know, you should check it out too. Yes. But the female brain, the XX brain is like, it's, it gives you, this is like a guide it, to it understanding to be, your body. Yes, it was yeah. meant to be a woman's guide to maximizing brain health and preventing Alzheimer's yeah. disease. That was my idea for the subtitle and then got kind of overruled. But I really wanted to write it as something that is very practical. So yes, there's, it's divided into three different parts. The first part is really the research, which I think is very motivating to really understand how your brain works and what hasn't been done and what needs to be done. But what we know so far is quite powerful already. Yeah. It's just that it's not common knowledge. Yeah. It's just not common knowledge. If you go to an OBGYN or a surgeon who's going to take out your ovaries, there's a good chance that they might not know that that's going to have an effect on your brain. Yeah. So I think there's yeah, a whole education thing that is kind of missing in medicine. I think yeah. we, we should be doing a much better job of really communicating with each other and Absolutely. sharing data and then providing information to the patients, a really comprehensive information, which is not to say the, the doctors don't want to do that. Yeah, of course. Right? It's just something that needs to happen yeah. and we're moving in that direction, but I think it's also important for women to know that and demand information and really understand their brains better. And then take part two, which is a lot of tests and it really helps you uh, figure out if there's anything that you should be concerned about, what kind of risk factors are really important for you and not the average statistical woman or person, <laughs> right? And then in part three, which is the longest part of the book, is really everything we know from science, no internet, no, you know, no personal opinions. It's really science-based evidence and actionable research yeah. that every woman can, can really engage in today, including a lot of information on hormones. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. you talk about that um, we have a chronological age, we have a hormonal age. Yes. And so yes. this is really a big key as we move into this new model yes, right. of women's health and just health overall for anybody is mm -hmm. understanding we have a hormonal age. Yes. I think it's more of a thing for women for the reasons we just discussed that all of a sudden you're aging really yeah. fast, right? As you hit menopause, your clock, your biological clock and your hormonal clocks are kind of not in sync anymore. And so I think especially midlife as women approach perimenopause, which is any woman of age 45 and older, sometimes younger, 
you know, with pretty much every woman, um, something is happening to your brain that really deserves your attention, your full attention, and your support. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the nice thing that, that we can do for ourselves to really feel connected to our brains and acknowledge the fact that your brain is not just going to get better on its own. And there are a lot of things that you can do to protect it, to support it, to nourish it, especially in midlife when women's brains seem to be more sensitive to hormonal aging than just straight up chronological aging, which is not putting women down. It's not a condescending thing to say. It's exactly the, the opposite. We just, we have these hormones. You know, it's not sexist to say that they matter for your brain, which is not to endorse any stereotypes, right? And women have the chocolate love and the shopping thing. <laughs> um, but it's really about understanding that these hormones matter and that we need to just protect them the same way that we, we think about health for many other things. Yeah, and I love the fact that you talk about why, just that question, like why, why do women have to go through this at all? Right. You know, and just kind of like, it seems like <laughs> right. a philosophical question, but you mentioned yes. that there's only two species that are able to continue living after their fertility is over. Yeah. And it was what, what whales and women, women. And killer whales. And killer whales, not just the regular. Not just regular whales, <laughs> killer whales. There's another type of whale as well that I yeah. just learned about, but I, I think they're rare. Yeah. But killer whales are quite interesting. So fascinating. Yes. And you have a, and this is the thing is like we try to, to piece together like why, why yes. would that be? Mm -hmm. And you had a great example of how even killer whales, how their uh, social dynamic is. Yes. So let's talk about they that. They live in matriarchal societies. So the kids stay with the mom for a long time, which is kind of parallel to ancient humans, mm -hmm. where the men used to go hunting and were gone for a long time, understandably. And women would stay back and take care of the kids and the elderly. And the men might not come back, too. And then I'll come back to yeah. this truth. So there's this theory, which I think is really cute, it's called the grandmother hypothesis, that says that at some point Mother Nature thought, well, I don't want these women to die when they're no longer fertile. I mm. want them to stay with, with their daughters and mm. become grandmothers and really help. But in order to avoid a reproductive conflict, I'm just going to make them infertile. So they can stay on. They can help out, mm -hmm. but they're not going to have kids anymore because we need the younger generations to have kids because that's much more powerful. The kids are going to be stronger and healthier and yeah. whatnot. So that's, that's what people think. And I think Mother Nature could have made it a little bit better, right? The sensation <laughs> could have been smoother. But yeah. Oh, man, I love it. So is that the, what is it called? The grandmother? The grandmother hypothesis. The gram hypothesis. Got it. <laughs> All right. So now that we, you know, we've established that this is not, this isn't a, a sexist issue. This is a no, fact. It's a fact, and yes. Men menopause and is something that is just a normal process. Yes. And it's a taboo still. Taboo, in our society, right? We should really break pretty fast. Yeah, it's and it's it's ridiculous. So if we can, let's let's first just give a brief summation of. We know what well, we, we tend to, tends to happen, and what we see in the media or even movies mm -hmm. is like, you know, the hot flashes. Right. We see the unstable emotions. Like, yes. what's Crying going spells. on when when menopause? 
when the process actually takes place, why are why why do women experience these symptoms? Right. And that's really a good point, and I, I was so surprised to learn that that is not common knowledge at all. So I think it's really good that we get a chance to talk about it. And it really goes back to what we were saying before, that the, the female brain is wired to respond to estrogen. Mm. And all these little estrogen receptors are located in very specific brain regions. They're particularly abundant for example, in the hypothalamus, which is the brain region in charge of regulating body temperature. Mm. So if estrogen doesn't activate mm. the hypothalamus correctly, then the, the brain is not able to regulate body temperature correctly. Those hot flashes that women get, that's the hypothalamus. It's just that the estrogen is, is going up and down, it's all over the place, and the hypothalamus gets confused and can't keep your body temperature constant or is the brainstem, which in it is in charge of sleep and wake. So if estrogen doesn't activate the brainstem correctly, we wake up at night or we have trouble sleeping. And then there's the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, which is right next to the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain. So when estrogen levels ebb in these regions, some women get mood swings, some women get depression, some women have memory lapses. All those symptoms, when women say, we're having hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, depression, anxiety, brain fog is a mm -hmm. big one, memory lapses. Those, those symptoms don't start in the ovaries. They start in the brain, in those very specific regions of the brain that are adjusting to the fact that your estrogens are all over the place. Yeah. This is fascinating because, yeah. you know, with the hypothalamus, like there's so many questions that are being answered in my mind right now. <laughs> and it's kind of considered this master gland. And yes. it's like an interface, like your endocrine system, your nervous system. Right. But so, it's of course. It's also the region that regulates the production of estrogen and progesterone, right? So it's not being activated correctly. So it basically yeah. becomes a loop that yeah. is not as efficient as it was. And being that it's regulating temperature makes complete sense, but also it's it's a assistive regulator in your body's use of calories. Mm -hmm. yes. So we see the fluctuation with weight. Absolutely. Oh my so God. many women put on weight after menopause. Huh. Mm -hmm. It really starts in why your brain. You, why are you like making everything make sense now, <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh. Because as a woman, I really wanted to know. Yeah. And I was surprised that I didn't know, that nobody would tell me. My mom didn't tell me a yeah. word about menopause. I asked her because for many women, knowing what happened to the mom is a good indication of what's going to happen to you, mm -hmm. right? So I was like, Mom, how did you make it? How was it for you? And she's like, oh, I know, I had some trouble sleeping, but brought yeah. me okay. So I was like, okay, and so I, I, there's hope for me as well. But the important thing is then, yes, there's a genetic component, but then your lifestyle plays a huge role. For example, personal example, my mom never smoked and she went through menopause at 53, which is on the later side. I smoked in high school being Italian. Mm. Not nearly as much as my friends used to, but <laughs> I probably smoked enough to actually create a problem for my ovaries because mm. smoking is the number one cause of early menopause. Mm. Yes, so it's even more of a good reason not to smoke cigarettes, especially oh. for girls. Poor ovaries, no. Poor ovaries, yeah, it's, it's a toxin. Yeah. It's a very specific ovarian toxin. So that, again, that, I think that highlights an important category of 
toxin exposure yes. can affect this process. So very yeah. grateful for that. Now, when we think about the transition uh, through menopause, what tends to come up in the just public consciousness is hormone therapy. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about that before we talk about some of the like real brick and mortar yes. solutions. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you think? First of all, bioidentical hormones. Hi. What do you, what you do you live think in about California. this? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a big deal in California. Yeah. Um, well, hormones are, are complicated and there's a lot of confusion on whether or not one formulation is safer than the other and one dosage is better than a compounded dose. And um, I think we need much better data and more research to really answer all these very important questions. Yeah. What we know for sure about hormones is what we should not be doing. I think that's the major lesson that we got, that we learned from clinical trials. And especially just what happened historically is that in 1950s, the first hormonal formulation became available and it was met with such incredible joy and expectations that every woman in menopause was put on hormones, very high doses of hormones, and basically left on hormones for life. And that was before the NIH, the National Institute on Health, even had a chance to run clinical trials mm. to really look at safety and side effects and efficacy. So in 1993, the NIH launched the Women's Health Initiative, which was an enormous clinical trials with tens of thousands of women who have randomized to take either hormones or placebo for years. And the idea was that taking the hormones that the body was no longer making would really help reduce all these things that we talked about, mm -hmm. the symptoms of menopause, not just the hot flashes, which were a big concern, of course, but especially the trials looked at risk of heart disease and stroke and blood clots and also dementia. And what happened is that they were very abruptly stopped in 2002, 2003, because very early data showed that the therapy was doing exactly the opposite of what was supposed to be doing. So there was a much higher incidence of heart attacks and strokes and cardiac events for women taking the estrogens and a progestin, which is a synthetic form of progesterone. Uh, there was also higher risk of cancer and for those women, there was also twice the chance of developing dementia. Oh my God! So it was it was an absolute disaster. The trials were stopped. Uh, the news really picked on on that and really broadcasted this data in a very frightening way. And so just so many women just stopped therapy, basically cold turkey. And there were so many lawsuits and and basically research development kind of stopped at that point. And I think it's been really hard to get back up to speed since then. Just recently, we, we have some new clinical trials that are much better versions of that trial in mm. that the Women's Health Initiative had some issues to start with, especially that the women in the trial, both trials were too old to start with. They were pretty much over 65. You know, if you go through menopause at 50-ish, and you, your system shuts down. The receptors 
are just going to shut down because there's no there's no estrogen activating them, and so the whole you know your brain your body just resets and moves forward. But if you then reintroduce the hormones when the system is not ready to receive them, you're not going to get a benefit. Mm. You may get a bunch of side effects, which mm -hmm. is what happened, especially for the vascular system, which seemed to be the the major issue. And then just recently. I'm going to make it really short, <laughs> but now we have some clinical trials in younger women, and it turns out that if you, especially for your brain, if you take hormones within six years of menopause, that is not harmful. It doesn't seem to be particularly beneficial yet, but there's hope. And then, you know, of course, we need to test different formulations and different dosages and different timelines, and what many of us really believe is that you need to probe the system. You need to mm. see. Are your receptors active? Mm -hmm. Is your system ready to take these hormones? When is this the best time to start? When is the best time to stop? And how much of these hormones do you need as a woman? Because there's no average dose. You know, every woman makes a different quantity of, of hormones and different qualities. So yeah. you really, therapy really needs to be individualized. Yeah. And I want to, because I get this question all the time, sure. should I take these hormones? Should I be on hormone? And so what I did, is of course describe this in detail, but then I came up with flowcharts, mm. being a scientist. Yeah. So this is obviously not to replace your doctor. Which is in the book, the flowcharts. Yeah, the flowcharts are in the book, and I think you can just start and say, okay, do you have hot flashes? Yes, no. Do you have low sex drive? Yes, no. Um, do you have blah, 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 blah? Yes, no. And then it gives you options. Are you eligible for hormonal therapy? Mm -hmm. Many women are not. Yeah. Some women are. Yeah. And if you are eligible, then you go to the next um, thing, the next figure, and decide whether or not there are risks associated with that, based on your age, on your cardiovascular risk score, on your cancer risk score. So there is no universal answer, right? It's yeah. not like you're a woman, so. Yeah. You do this. Here there are go. a number of parameters that we need to take into account, and I explain them in the book. Yeah. So, so it's a good important. start. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's creating a broader, like, I think our tendency is towards just, you know, again, one, one lane or one track yes. thinking just because of the way that our system is structured. Right. And, uh, like, they were giving out estrogen like hotcakes in the 1950s, yes. and now, you know, the conversation has shifted. And with that said, with it opening up, uh, a lot of people are aware of the genetic component mm -hmm. to conditions like Alzheimer's. Um, and so there's a lot of various genetic testing available. Yes. And this is a topic you address in the book because yes. it taking, it, taking it upon ourselves to do you know, the direct-to-consumer yes. tests, which this bothered me for a long time. This is it why does. people are wondering, like, why don't I talk about it very frequently on the show? Is because I, I saw some bad decisions. People are just at cocktail yes. parties, you know? Yeah. They're talking. It was like, oh, yeah, you get your genes tested and, you know, whatever. Then you can, you know, get your uh, ovaries removed or whatever based mm -hmm. off of these tests that come in the mail. Right. Now, with that said, um, here, I got to share this. This is a quote from the book. Okay. You state that the problem with many direct-to-consumer genetic tests, you said that the tests might only be slightly more accurate than horoscopes. Yes. All right. Now let me with that said, let in me some, tell you my let me tell cases. you my horoscope today. <laughs> so I went and looked it up, okay? 
And um, this is my true horoscope today, which I don't know anything about horoscopes, but this is what my <laughs> horoscope said. <laughs> Enjoy lighthearted socializing among friends and colleagues, striking a good balance between one-on-one -on -one contact and group activities. How's that even a horoscope? This is like a fortune That's cookie. That's so general. But guess what we're doing right now? One-on-one. -on -one. Okay, come on. <laughs> For two introverts. Somebody's like, somebody <laughs> that's about that horoscope life, they're like, see, I told you. Yeah. But... Yeah, so that's the thing. There's a but lot of guesswork involved. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think as a as a scientist and as a person who is responsible for a lot of patients, I want to know what the test-free test reliability is for any test. So if you're being tested today and tomorrow and in a month, I need to have the same result. And we have clear certified labs with known test-free test reliability, which is never perfect, by the way. There's always a margin of error, right? But usually is quite low and is known for the tests. But most TDC's tests do not even share that information. Like I looked at a few because our patients would come to us mm -hmm. and say, I have this APOE genotype and terrified is the bad Alzheimer's gene. And was like, yeah. how did you even get it done? They're like, oh, I did like 23andMe, for example. And very often we repeat the test. Actually, we always repeat the test mm -hmm. if they are our patients and very often they don't match. But we use a clear certified lab, so I'm much more confident that the results we get are the right ones. Yeah. There was this study published in Nature showing how even the BRCA gene gets really mis misdiagnosed with these tests. That's and the then breast women, cancer. Yeah, that's the breast cancer yeah. gene, the BRCA1 or 2. And if you don't go to a specialist to have it confirmed, and it turns out you don't have the genetic mutation, I mean, women can really make a decision to to have their breasts removed or their, you know, uterus removed and then yeah. find out, oh, actually, perhaps. Yeah. Although any reasonable doctor would repeat the test. Yeah. But it was incredible how inaccurate. Yeah. And even the apogene, A-P-O-E gene, by yeah. the way, um, which is largely, but not appropriately linked to Alzheimer's because I think you shared there's maybe like 60% of Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's patients, patients do don't even have it. Yeah, don't even have absolutely. that gene. Absolutely. And it creates so much fear. And this is what I wanted to highlight is that yeah. you, you mentioned that basically receiving genetic information without counseling yes. is dangerous. It is very dangerous. Re receiving any medical information or clinical information without guidance, I think, is, is potentially a problem. Because what do you do with the information? With, with some tests, like if your cholesterol is high at this point, most likely than not, you know what they're supposed to be doing, right? You watch your diet, your exercise, and other parameters. You ask your f parents, did they have high, high cholesterol, is it genetic or not? But then there are all these new tests for which uh, the test is only as good as the doctor who's going to manage yeah. your response to the knowledge of the test and who's also going to know what to do about it. And that's what you really focus on in the latter part of the book. Yes. What are the things we can do to manage this risk yes. to make all these processes much more great, graceful and just to help you to feel better, perform mm -hmm. better. Yes. And so I want to talk about that. You mentioned one okay. earlier, which is uh, a risk factor, which is smoking yes. and the impact that can have on ovaries. Health, yeah. But some of the things that we can do that you talk about in the book, steps to a well-nourished brain specifically, mm. And I want to talk about some of these. Uh, one of them is to protect your brain with antioxidants. Yes. 
So why does that matter? That's a good one. Well, I think it really matters for a number of reasons. Number one, that the brain is the most metabolically active organ in the body. And by virtue of being so energetically active, it's also really sensitive and really vulnerable to oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. And oxidative stress is something that happens in your body and your brain as you age. It's just a natural part of getting older. And it is, in fact, a product of glucose metabolism, creating um, you know, oxygen peroxide or yeah. these this, um, oxidants. Mm -hmm. But the good news is that you can kind of balance it out by importing antioxidants into your body and your brain by means of a healthy diet, which is really one of the few ways that we can reduce oxidative stress is through the diet. Yeah. And then the other reason that oxidative stress is such an issue, especially for women around midlife or menopause, is that we show those energy reductions in the brain yeah. that are potentially related to oxidative stress or to the brain becoming even more vulnerable to things like oxidative stress and inflammation. So antioxidants are really important. And the good thing is that they come from foods that actually yeah. taste good. We yeah. were talking about non-juice then. Yeah. It's not yeah. exactly palatable, <laughs> but many veggies and fruits and nuts and seeds contain antioxidants. Even caviar contains a little bit, but just yeah. a little bit. Uh, it's mostly really vegetables and fruits, which yeah. one should be eating anyway. Mm -hmm. But the important thing to know is that for women, Specifically, we have evidence that three vitamins in particular are really helpful against oxidative stress. And these are vitamin A or beta-carotene, which is the precursor, and then vitamin C and vitamin E. And the interesting thing is that vitamin C and E are also really helpful to alleviate the symptoms of menopause. Hmm. So see how everything seems to yeah. be really going hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. You mentioned in the book there was a large-scale studies found that elderly people consuming a good amount of vitamin E had yes. nearly 70% lower risk of developing dementia. Yes, especially when taken together with vitamin C. So if you have both, and the thing is, they had it in their diets. Mm -hmm. So we need more research on that, but it looks like obtaining these nutrients, the antioxidants from the diet is actually better than getting the same nutrients from supplements because yeah. they're more biologically active and they contain more varieties of the same vitamin. So vitamin E comes in eight different isoforms and each one of these isoforms has a slightly different effect on the brain. Like the alpha variety is more for oxygenation, the gamma variety increases blood flow a little bit more. So when you eat almonds or olive oil or other fruit, mm -hmm. other nutrients, other foods that contain vitamin E, you get all these different forms. Whereas usually when you buy the supplements, it's just one, it's one right. of the variety. But also there's a lot more in food. Yeah, you the cofactors. The, the cofactors, the interactions between yeah. different nutrients and the experience. I hope everybody heard that. There are different forms of vitamin E. It's not just one yes. thing. Same thing, we know about vitamin D. Right. But it's the same thing with vitamin C. It's the same thing with vitamin E. The B, the B, vitamins, B vitamins, we know so about that different. category. You yes. know, it's, and so when you're taking a supplement and it says, you know, getting my you know, 300% my daily value of vitamin E, is that the kind you really need, you know? Which is, again, if you lean towards food. And so you mentioned olive oil, yes. um, almonds, so nuts Almond. and seeds, avocados is another avocados, good source. Avocados, so great. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, that's so good. So that's 
the first Food is one. medicine, yes, it's really important. Hippocrates said it. <laughs> uh, yes. Another one here is to manage your carbs. So this is manage. interesting dichotomy because you're saying we need glucose yes. for the brain to be able to do its yes. do its thing, but we gotta be cautious. Careful. Yeah. Yes, I think. So there's there's interesting research that was really done in women that never really gets shared outside of academia. And I didn't even know that much about it until I really started looking into that. There are these beautiful studies, mostly done at Harvard, uh, like the Nurses Health Studies, a huge one, really fabulous. And they looked specifically at women and clearly showed that um, carbohydrates are good for women. Mm. And I think it's good to talk about it right now because you know, with all these high-fat diets being so popular and so trendy, there's a tendency for many, obviously men, but also women, to really stay away from carbohydrates and almost be fearful yeah. of carbohydrates. So I think it's important to know that they're not necessarily bad for you as long as you eat them, obviously, in reasonable amounts. And also it's important to talk about the quality mm -hmm. of the carbs, that there are, there are carbohydrates that really negatively impact your body mostly by negatively impacting your hormones. And then there are like the refined carbohydrates, like white sugar, white bread, and refined pasta, pizza, all the good things. <laughs> and then there are the you know, so-called good carbs that don't impact your insulin levels nearly as much, but they do provide enough glucose and fiber, like complex carbohydrates. And that has been shown in a ton of studies to be really correlated with improved um, health in women. So a lower risk of cognitive decline, a much lower risk of heart disease and stroke, lower risk of depression. And just for context, I'm not saying that one shouldn't be eating the fats, right? It's more like um, because women's bodies and brains are so dependent on estrogens, at least prior to menopause, it's helpful to know that estrogen is um, a carbohydrate burning hormones. So it really helps you burn the carbohydrates as a woman. So even if you're on a high carb diet as a woman, you're still going to burn all those carbs. Whereas men, because they have more testosterone and less estrogens, tend to put that away as glycogen in their tissues. So the metabolism of carbohydrates differs between the genders, not completely, yeah. but a little bit. So I think it's good to know that. Just go for fiber, fiber-rich foods that also provide glucose for your brain. And I would also like to mention that of all the diets out there, the Mediterranean diet has been shown to really support health in women, overall health. Like women on this diet have a much lower risk of cognitive decline as compared to those on more like Western diets. They have a much lower risk of heart disease, of stroke, or depression, and of cancer. And they also have like 30% fewer heart flashes. So I think it's something good to know because the Mediterranean diet is a flexible diet. It's mostly vegetables and fruits and whole grains if you eat them, legumes if you'd rather have legumes or don't have them. You know, but have your veggies and your fruit and then fish is a big part of the diet, healthy fats, like we don't have avocados, but let's throw it in there with extra virgin olive oil is a really good source. And meat and dairy products are consumed in moderation, which is not you shouldn't eat them, right? Just not breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or that should be more like a treat. 
Yeah. I think. And of course, no processed food. And this is a good segue because you mentioned uh, one of these is to choose the right fats. And right. in the nurse's health study, you no noted that when we're looking at women taking uh, full fat milk versus yes. low fat milk, there yes. was a big distinction there. Yes, in that the full fat milk was actually better. Yeah for fertility that's a study that specifically, was really for, specifically fertility. for fertility however fertility is related to ovarian health and hormonal health and the longer you're fertile the later you go through menopause so in some ways it must be good for your brain mm, of course as well right and the point being that um cows that make milk are pregnant cows mm. and so they have all the hormones beyond lactin but they also have a lot of estrogens in the milk but when you remove the fat from the milk, you're also getting rid of the hormones that are bound to fatty particles, mm -hmm. right? Hormones bind to fat. And what you're left with is more like a bizarre hormonal cocktail that is more androgenic than estrogenic. So there's this theory that by drinking low fat or no fat milk, you're effectively getting a lot of androgens inside your own body. I don't think that quantity really yeah. you know, is, is that much. But it does seem yeah. to play some some kind of role. Yeah, um, and it's a simple principle to follow as well. Like, and you just outline it very clearly. Just go for the full fat versions. Yeah, this is not? how nature would produce it. Right, it tastes better. <laughs> but we know we suffer through. Like, you know, yes. growing up, uh, we had uh, uh, one of these like um, like a WIC program here in the U.S. where it's basically like um, government food ah. stores, you know, like okay. we would go to food pantries and we get these uh, kind of government handouts. Mm. And one of the programs, we got skim milk ah. instead of, you know, the vitamin D full fat milk, which is great. But I remember pouring that skim milk over my cereal and just feeling like really literally sad. feeling like, yes, like <laughs> I should just, why don't I just use water? Like right. this is just white water yes. and it would piss me off as a kid. And so I just would just eat the cereal dry rather than oh. suffer through the white water. <laughs> so, but now we know. <laughs> but again. I agree. Yeah. I mean, what's the point? It doesn't taste good. Yeah, for it's sure. probably like let's give it to the poor kids. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, there's again, there's so many different important uh, facets of having a well-nourished brain that you outline. I just want to talk about maybe one or two more. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really fascinating when you mentioned feed your microbes. Yes. And how does that relate? When we're thinking about brain health, how does that correlate with the microbes? Yeah, that's a really good question. And as usual, I go to how is that specifically important for women? But the, the point is that um, the microbes in your guts do have, the health of your microbes has an effect on the health of your brain. So we know that if you have more of the bad microbes and fewer of the good ones, there's a tendency to suffer more from anxiety, for example, and depression. And sometimes anyone who's ever had food poisoning knows that you can't think straight, right? So they do cloud your mind. If you have a problem in your gut, it can have an effect on your brain. And something that is interesting to me as, as a women's brain advocate, especially, if you will, is that uh, fiber is excellent for really supporting gut health and also stabilizing hormonal levels. So by feeding your guts the right way with, fi with fiber, with oligosaccharides, which are the specific carbs that 
they're not digestible for us, but they feed the microbes in the, in the gut and taking you know, prebiotics and probiotics, um, hopefully from foods, but also from supplements, you're not only supporting digestive health, but also you're supporting your hormones. And I think this is something really interesting and, and important to just to keep in mind, you yeah. know, you're doing something good for, for, your, for your tummy, for your hormones, and as a result, for your brain as well. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Yes. Uh, we've been sprinkling in this conversation um, for years just mm. about how powerful these microbes are in influencing our health. And just even understanding we have all of our human genes, but then all of these microbes, these trillions yeah. they have their own genes they have their own you genes. know and we're still just scratching the surface on our understanding yeah uh, so definitely much more to come there and i was just like of course like it has to be highlighted in your book yeah. as well but <laughs> you know it's interesting to me about um microbes and how they're related to the brain is is how surprising that was right when that correlation came out everybody was kind of skeptical or not quite sure and now everybody's really into that and I think that's a major flaw with western medicine how we tend to think of our bodies as a bunch of separate organs that don't speak to each other and that's the same for women's health because it's really it's not about your brain or your ovaries or something else they're, they're a system they speak yeah. to each other and in my opinion if you have a problem with your foot your brain knows about oh, it, right? God. Because yeah, the you say how to come, for sure, yeah. your brain must be like, ah. And, and any big uh, change in any organ of the body must have an effect on the brain. Yeah. And I think we, we should really move towards a more integrative approach to health yeah, that considers all of us. You know? This is a perfect segue to <laughs> the last thing I want to ask okay, you about, okay. which is addressing the stress component yes. of brain health. Let's do that. And this is... Yikes. Definitely not talked about enough when we're talking about the female brain yes. and how stress plays a big part Yes. In well, stress plays a really big role for men and women, of course, and it's the silent killer in our society. It really puts people at risk for heart attacks and strokes and inflammation, and it, it impacts your brain as well. And for women in particular, there are some very interesting brain imaging studies showing how if your cortisol levels are really high, the levels of your main stress hormone, your brain suffers even already in midlife. And that really high cortisol levels correlate with brain shrinkage and memory impairment already when you're 50 years old. But the brain shrinkage was only found in women and not in men. So in men, if you have high cortisol levels, your memory might suffer and your performance might suffer, but your brain is still kind of compensating for it. Whereas women's brains, especially postmenopause, show signs of shrinkage as a response to high stress levels or chronic stress levels. And this is telling, I think, because we know that stress can literally steal your hormones. Mm -hmm. So cortisol, Again, the main stress hormone works in balance with your, with your estrogens. So if your cortisol goes up, your estrogens go down. If cortisol goes down, your estrogens go back up. And this is because they have a common precursor, which is called pregnenolone. So the body needs pregnenolone to make both cortisol and estrogens and testosterone. And if you need to make more cortisol, the body's gonna steal the pregnenolone away from your sex hormones and just shuffle it towards mm. the cortisol levels. Yeah. And so your hormones just plummet. 
And unfortunately, there's a ton of evidence that women suffer stress or experience stress in a more severe way than men do. And again, it's not about comparing. The point is that women are stressed out. And it looks like the peak is somewhere between the age of 25 and 45. And for most women, really um, maps onto the perimenopause, which is honestly when most women have small kids and they have full-time jobs yeah. and they're trying to hold on to their husbands as well. And they may have elderly parents who need help. So there's a whole lot going on and then stress levels go really go up and you don't have time for yourself. And then also really has consequences, not just on your health, but also on your brain health. So for all husbands out there, partners or friends, help them out. Help those <laughs> <Yes>. women out. It's <laughs> good advice. Know. You know, uh, we mentioned this earlier and, uh, you know, with your daughter breaking the boards and oh you taking God, that yes. break, you know, just having yes. that teamwork because this is something we evolved having, you know, we evolved yes. having a tribe, community, uh, but now we're isolated. We have our little family nook somewhere and oftentimes we're not by our parents anymore right. or other, you know, caregiver support systems. And sometimes we don't even have two parents, you right. know? And so I think it's important for all of us to open our minds because no matter what situation you are in, first of all, if you do have access and support, yes, it's a blessing. It. Use it, be more proactive in it. And even understanding just how much stress and just tie, being tied up in all this stuff is, is hurting your brain. Yes. And so, but if you are in a position where you don't feel like you have that, make it an intention, you yeah. know, open yourself up to, you know, because for some people it's just like, well, you know, I, I, I don't like my, my mother-in-law or whatever it is, another stereotype. Okay. I love my mother-in-law. <laughs> all right. But that might be a situation where you just open yourself up to better communication mm -hmm. uh, and understanding that that is another vital influence for your child to have that wisdom input and for also for you to have some time to yourself while your child is in you yes. know the hands of somebody who you trust right. so open yourself up friends and family expanding your yes. communication your community yeah. is super important humans we our genes expect that of us, mm -hmm. you know? Yes, so. true. And also for introverts who perhaps don't want to go <laughs> that way, there yeah. are other things, there are other stress reduction yeah. techniques, like green time over screen time mm -hmm. seems to be a big one. Uh, meditation helps a lot of people. And especially for women, there were some interesting clinical trials showing how a regular meditation practice, even just 12 minutes a day, really lowered cortisol levels and improved oxygenation to the brain, improved blood flow to the brain, and also reduced the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. Mm, blood so flow is super important. It oh my is gosh. important. If anyone is into meditation, I think it's a great asset. It's a great tool yeah. to cultivate. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. If you did, please share this out with your friends and family. Sharing is caring. Help to spread this empowering information. And listen, we've got some incredible, epic guests and masterclasses coming up very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. 
And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.